you know, about ten years ago, they moved up here to New Haven. Well, they now they primarily deal with how are indigenous missionaries, Koreans, Indians, Chinese, Africans, who come to this country for a year sabbatical to study. Well, they thought they would take some of their people on a little tour of William Howard Doan history. So they want to come to eastern Connecticut and visit our church, the church, Congregational Church down here in the Baptist Church in Voluntown. He, was, he grew up here, was music minister at the other two. This is going to be this Saturday. They said they would get here about 10 or 10.30, and I want to know if we have... And this guy knows a lot about the history of William Howard Doan, which involves the history of this church in Preston and everything else. And I want to know if anybody's interested in meeting them here so they can look at the church and get a feel for things and get your ear full of history. Uh, if we don't have anybody to meet them here, open the door, let them in, then I need to let the guy know tomorrow that nobody will be here. I will be gone. I'm performing a wedding on Miami Beach at 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. So life, life will be... I need life will be rough this this weekend. I'll get to fly out Friday morning. Unfortunately, I have to get up at 4:30 in the morning to make my flight Friday morning, and I get back I get back at midnight Saturday night. So <laughs> it's gonna <clears throat> I'll probably fall asleep under the sun Friday afternoon. It's this Saturday, so I'm not going. Do what? He said about 10 or 10:30 is when they would arrive. So if anybody can be here to open the church, give them a walk, walk through. Bryce, you missed that. You're volunteered. <laughs> be here at the church 10.30 Saturday morning to open it up for the guys for the historical tour. This is the William Howard Doan crowd that's coming up from uh, down there. So, so you can... You can <laughs> wear, you wear your colonial outfit, yeah. Knickers and everything. And Louise, you had an announcement. Right. Oh, oh, we'll need to clean the church. Since this crew's coming to visit the church, we need to have a, some volunteers who will clean. So all of you who wish to volunteer to clean the church, see Louise. And um, we will have drafting if there's no volunteering. <laughs> God may have instituted free will as divine establishment, but we'll, we'll operate on election in the Calvinistic sense <laughs> if, we, if we don't have volunteers. What? Right. Start cleaning the church at, at 7. Well, enough frivolity. We need to uh, make sure we're prepared for worship as we study God's Word, the highest form of worship, which means we need to be in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship, give people the opportunity to confess their sins if necessary. For the filling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells us and fills us for the purpose of teaching us, helping us to understand the Word of God so that we can apply it in our lives. So let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful for the opportunity to be here this morning to have our souls refreshed by the teaching of your word. Lord, after struggling through days and situations where the world seems to oppress and overwhelm us at times and we face various adversities and difficulties, how good it is to hear your word and to be refreshed by it. We pray that God the Holy Spirit who teaches us would uh, challenge each of us with the things we study tonight. Help us to understand them and how they relate to ourselves. May we be objective in evaluating ourselves by the absolute standard of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 2, verse 5. James chapter 2, verse 5. We're making progress slowly through James 2. This is a crucial passage, and as I have studied it, when we look at verse 8, 
I want to skip ahead a little bit. Preview of coming attractions. Pre- the, the, the mandate of verse 8 seems to be the key issue in this entire chapter. We want to understand what James is talking about. Well, not the whole chapter, this section. If we want to understand what James is talking about, from 2.1 down through 2.12, we have to understand verse 8. This is what we would call a hinge passage. Everything else turns on verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture. Now, what is the royal law? It's a quote from Leviticus 19.18 in the Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's the key principle here. Loving your neighbor as yourself and unpacking what that means. Discovering what it means to have that kind of love for your neighbor. And, of course, the issue involves the matter of partiality and prejudice with relationship to the rich oppressor who comes into the church dressed in all of his finery, wearing his Armani suit and his rings, I mean his fingers uh, dripping with gold rings, and he has on fine jewelry. And so he is seated in a place of honor because of who he is and because of his possessions, his prestige, and his position, where the poor man, who probably is a fairly growing, maturing, growing believer, is ignored because of what's on the outside. But remember, God looks on the heart. God does not look on the outside. And so often we want to judge a book by its cover and make uh, snap decisions about people because of how they dress, how they look, what their job is, what their education is, all these various external factors, rather than taking the time to get to know them and seeing what is on the inside and what, what makes up their soul. We got down to verse 5. And we have stopped because it has some important concepts there. It begins with a mandate, a second person plural aorist active imperative of akuo, which means to pay attention or to concentrate. It reminds us that the theme of this whole section, starting in verse, back in verse 21, is to hear the word. It's the first mandate of uh, verse 19, be quick to hear. And from 121 to 226, the theme is to listen to the word and to not merely not be merely a hearer, but a doer. Now, a hearer is the same word in the Greek, akouo, A-K-O-U-O, and it means to hear. And in both the Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek, the concept of hearing is a concept that listens with a positive response. It is not just listening for the sake of having your ears tickled, not just listening for the sake of accumulating interesting information and facts and learning things about the Bible, uh, building a doctrinal notebook and and, uh, impressing people with your uh, theological acumen and your vocabulary, but it always results in application, which is the best translation of poieo in this context, be a hearer, prove yourself, literally it's not prove, it's genomine, it means to become appliers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And so we're talking about application and specifically application in the realm of what we call impersonal love for all mankind. Now some people don't like the term impersonal love, and that's fine. I can understand why some people uh, feel a little put off by that concept. And so you can just as well use the word unconditional because the issue in impersonal love is that it does not place conditions on the object of love for the uh, practice of love. The reason this word is used is because when you make a statement, I love you, when you're talking about personal love, then you're, the person who is doing the loving is, has a personal relationship with the object of love. There is something attractive. There is something winsome. There is something uh, important or something that is valued in the object of love so that the person loves them because of who and what the object is or has. 
Now, that's called personal love because there, it involves a personal, personal knowledge and a personal relationship. So in contrast to that, you have the term impersonal love because you may not even know the person. You can exercise impersonal love when you're driving down the highway and just in the way that you deal with other drivers on the road. In some states, they have the, the slogan up on the highway, drive friendly. Well, that's a function of impersonal love, treating other people um, like you would want them to treat you. You don't know them. You don't have any kind of personal relationship with them at all. So that is why the word impersonal is used in describing impersonal love. Now, when we get to the whole subject of love, and I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this lately because it plays its part in several passages we're studying right now, there, there are a lot of complexities, a lot of difficult things that the Scripture says about love. And it's hard for us, I think, as Americans to understand love. I think that's pretty self-evident. Just look at the divorce rate. Most people in America don't have a clue as to what real love is all about. In America, we have a tendency to define love in romantic terms. We define it in warm, fuzzy feelings, sentimentality. And yet, that is not what the Bible means when it's talking about love. There's something much deeper than that, and it has its roots not in emotions, not in warm, fuzzy feelings, but in uh, content and absolutes. So we have to come, when we come to this passage, we're going to be addressing the issue of impersonal love, but it is linked within the passage, of course, to personal love, personal love for God, and we find that at the end of verse 5. And this is where we stopped last week. Listen or pay attention, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world? And there we saw that that is a reference not to those who are simply impoverished materially, but to those who are humble. And this word is used in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, poor in spirit, meaning those who are truly humble, and brings back the idea of humility that is necessary for receiving the implanted word back in verse 21. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. And last week we looked again at the concept of inheritance and that there are two categories of inheritance for the believer. There's that category of inheritance where every believer is an heir of God. Every single believer, by virtue of their uh, salvation and adoption into the family, is an heir of God and will possess certain things for eternity, including a resurrection body and the absence of a sin nature, and that they will reside in heaven. But not everyone will possess the kingdom. And there is a different term used, which is inherit the kingdom, and is related to being a co-heir, a joint heir, with the Lord Jesus Christ in his sufferings. And this refers to believers who advance to spiritual maturity, who encounter various trials and testing and adversity, and apply the word of God, uh, in, in the midst of that and grow to maturity and they will be joint heirs with Christ and they will have special rewards and special and a special inheritance in heaven. Now here we see that this special inheritance is related to those who love God. Now it may surprise you, but not every believer loves God. In fact, I think that very few believers truly love God and we're going to have to stop tonight to go back over the doctrine of personal love for God. What does it mean to love God? And I think you'll find that the Scriptures say, tell us very, some very interesting things about love. Now, let's go back under point number one and remind ourselves of the ten stress busters that God has provided for every believer to handle prosperity and adversity, the various tests that we face. Now, here is a picture of the soul made up of our volition in the center, mentality, self-consciousness, emotion, and conscience. The soul is the real you. It's the immaterial part of us that makes up who we really are. Now, as we learn doctrine and begin to apply doctrine in our lives, we, we, we build or erect a fortress that strengthens, defends our soul. 
It's made up, the entry point is confession of sin. 1 John 1, 9, where we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's the second problem-solving device. Then we have the faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, personal sense of our eternal destiny, and then the love triplex. And there's always in scriptures, I've gone over these passages, and we'll go over them tonight, the Bible always seems to relate these together. They are not always separated. At one point or another, one aspect or another might be in view, but there is a very close relationship between these three. Personal love for God the Father, unconditional love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. And once we pass that, then we understand what the Bible means about inner happiness. Jesus said that we would share his joy with us, and this is the apex of the spiritual life. Now, there's another way to look at this, and that is that these stress busters comprise the sum total of the spiritual life. If you master these spiritual skills, you have advanced to spiritual adulthood, and you are glorifying God to the maximum in your life, if you understand this. And let's see how this breaks down. The most fundamental issue to spiritual life is confession. This is admission into spiritual life. 1 John 1.9 When we are out of fellowship, when we are under the control of the sin nature, we cannot glorify God at all. All the good works that we do are filthy rags. It's a product of the sin nature. It's called human good and dead works in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. So confession is fundamental. This is the most basic doctrine that you can understand beyond salvation and is critical to any spiritual growth or advance in the, in the uh, spiritual life. Then we have, then we enter, after that, we enter into spiritual infancy and childhood. Now, what characterizes spiritual infancy and childhood is that you are mastering three of these stress busters. You're mastering the faith rest drill. You can't go anywhere beyond confession, restoration of fellowship without using the faith rest drill. The faith rest drill involves, number one, mixing the promises of God with faith. So it involves knowing some of the promises of God, mixing them with faith. We trust God in the midst of life circumstances, and we begin to grow as a result of trusting God and applying doctrine. Then we re- use certain doctrinal rationales where we begin to see, well, God is omniscient, so he knows everything there is to know. He knew about this problem. God's omnipotent, so he's able to solve the problem. Therefore, I'm going to put it in God's hands and just relax. Now, that's summarized in one easy verse, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. But you're learning to think in terms of some doctrinal principles, and so you apply these doctrinal rationales to life. And then you draw doctrinal conclusions that God is able to solve your problems. That's faith, rest, drill. Then the next basic doctrine you're learning is grace orientation. You begin to realize that you really are nothing, absolutely nothing, and that God is everything, and that nothing you do is going to impress God one little bit. And so you begin to relate to God, not on the basis of who and what you are, but on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what He did on the cross. Grace orientation involves humility, because we recognize who we are in the plan of God, It involves authority orientation because we look at Scripture and the Scripture has certain mandates and we say, yes, sir, God. And it involves teachability. All these are related in the concept of grace orientation and ultimately it's going to lead to the mastery of the details of life because we realize that all that we have comes from God. Nothing we have is due to any of our own efforts. And anything that we have that is due to our own efforts is going to um, is is going to be meaningless. Faith rest drill, grace orientation, and then doctrinal <coughs> orientation. Now orientation means to align yourself with something, and doctrine is like a road map. And any of you who have ever driven in an unfamiliar place realize that there are times when you need to stop and pull off the side of the road if you have any humility. 
get out a map and orient yourself to reality. The map represents reality. Your conception of how things are, where things ought to be, represents self-deception and delusion. And so now you have to get it back in touch with reality so that you can arrive at your destination. Well, the Bible is that road map. And so we have to uh, be willing to uh, use the humility and teachability from grace orientation with doctrinal orientation, and we have to begin to learn the entire counsel of God so that we can grow and advance to spiritual maturity. Now, this characterizes the believer in infancy and childhood, trying to master these problem-solving devices, mastering these stress busters. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not learning anything about personal love for God or, or impersonal love for all mankind. He doesn't have any uh, joy or happiness, but that, that those are just begin developing in small increments. Primarily, he is focused on this area. Then we get to the third stage, which is always fun. We know what that is like in, under, in, in normal life with, with uh, teenagers. We read spiritual adolescence. And we know what a fun time that is. And, and you, this is when most believers fail and bail out in the spiritual life. Because this is really where things start getting a little bit tough. And we start getting some t- testing that's a little more rugged because now we've learned a little more and to whom much is given, much is expected. And it's amazing how many believers start bailing out once they hit spiritual adolescence. And the key here, the key stress buster that is developed in spiritual adolescence is the personal sense of our eternal destiny. What is the personal sense of eternal destiny? personal sense of eternal destiny is that we begin to realize that we're not living just for today or just for this life on earth. Now, some of you have been adolescents. Some of you have dealt with adolescents. Some of you are still adolescent. And some of you are getting ready to deal with your own adolescence. One thing that you learn about adolescents is they tend to be focused on right now. They're going to live forever. They're never going to grow old. They have no real conception of what's going to happen in their 20s or in their 30s or in their 40s. I mean, if we all knew then what we know now, we would probably all retire because we would have been investing money in those uh, mutual funds and and we would have... uh, uh, paid a little more attention in school, and there are just so many things we would have done if we had the sense of time uh, then that we have now. Well, this happens in the spiritual life. All of a sudden, you begin to wake up to the fact that we've got an eternal destiny, that we're headed for heaven, and that we truly have an eternal life that will never, ever end. And that what we take with us when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord is the doctrine that we have stored in our own souls. And that's going to be the result of the decisions that we make. And so we say that you are becoming, you are now, you are becoming now what you will be in eternity. So that every decision you make now has an eternal ramification. It will determine your position in terms of being an heir and rewards for all eternity. And just like the adolescent who comes out of those teenage years and goes into their 20s and begins to develop a little maturity and realize that life is not going to always be this way and that eventually they're going to grow old and they're going to need some other things and they begin to develop a sense of time, the same thing happens in the spiritual life and you begin to realize that you're living for something beyond just today. Spiritually, And so that gives you a greater glimpse. And once you go past a personal sense of your eternal destiny and start realizing that the decisions you make now affect eternity, then you go into spiritual adulthood. You go into spiritual adulthood, and in spiritual adulthood, there are three problem-solving devices that are crucial. And this is what I call the love triplex. Personal love for God impersonal love for all mankind, 
and occupation with Christ. They work together in tandem in many, many ways, and we're going to see that in our study of personal love for God tonight. And then finally, we reach spiritual maturity where we truly experience the fullness of joy that God has for us, sharing the happiness of God, and we have that joy in the midst of life's most horrible circumstances. So we move from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, and it's all on the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and the application of His Word. Now that was all point number two. We're looking at the pro- what does it mean to love God. Point number one was that God has provided us with ten stress busters. Point number two, we took those stress busters and we related those to four different stages in the spiritual life. And then three, the love triplex develops simultaneously and the three types of love, personal love for God the Father and personal love for all mankind and occupation with Christ are deeply intertwined and interconnected. And as we advance in one, we will advance in the other, and it will have an impact in the other sphere. Point number four. When Jesus summarized the entire law of the Old Testament, in other words, God's expectations for mankind, He did it in terms of love. He did it in terms of love. Why? Because that's when maturity hits. See, this is when life begins. For those of you who have gone past your early 20s, you realize that that life begins when you get mature. You begin to really have a capacity for life and a capacity for happiness and all the things that we have. And this is what it's all about. It's not about childhood. Now, sometimes we might look back to our childhood because those were fun times and we didn't have any stress or adversity, perhaps, but... But the goal is to be mature. That's what it is in the spiritual life. That's when it all starts coming together is when we hit maturity. We don't want to spend too much time in spiritual infancy. And the way to get past that is to pass the test, to learn doctrine, and to advance. And when we hit maturity, that's when the spiritual life really starts having an impact. And Jesus summarizes this in terms of love. All of God's expectations. So let's go back and look at these passages because I don't want to make a mistake that is commonly made when you start teaching some doctrines, and that is to get away from the anchor of the Word of God. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is having one of His uh, now familiar confrontations with the Religious leaders of Israel, Matthew 22:35 says, "And one of them, a lawyer, no lawyer jokes now. You know, everybody cracks jokes about a lawyer, but whenever you really get in trouble, what do you want? A good lawyer. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, the background on this, very simply, is that there was a great debate among the Pharisees as to which of the Ten Commandments was the greatest. And so they're going to try to uh, uh, get Jesus in a corner, in a theological corner here. And so he asked the question, what is the greatest commandment in the Lord? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus summarizes, notice this, very sophisticated answer. He summarizes the entire law, all the Mosaic law, all the codes, everything into two. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got, to paraphrase it. And two, love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's powerful. That connects both personal love for God and impersonal love for all mankind into one unit. They are deeply connected in the mind of God. You can't have one without the other. The love for God comes first because that's the motivator. It is our personal love for God and your personal love for God as you learn doctrine. Remember, you can't love someone you don't know. That's why it's preceded by grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. You have to have some humility before you're going to really come to understand who God is and what He has done for you. And all of that that we learn in childhood 
faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, merely provides the foundation so we can love God. This is the summation here. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God, and notice the terminology he uses. First of all, the first phrase, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, this is the Greek word cardia, and unfortunately, if you ever hang around a Southern Baptist for very long, you will discover that one of their favorite words is heart. Oh, well, it just weighs on my heart. I just knew that was right because uh, it felt good in my heart. My heart told me to do that. And you just want to say, well, what does heart mean? Would you please define this for me? And it's this, and then you'll always hear, well, it's a difference between a head faith and a heart faith. Well, the Bible doesn't know anything about that kind of fuzzy, subjective, emotional, sentimental use of the word heart. And it's really seeped into our vocabulary. It's based on the Greek word cardia. K-A-R. D-I-A. And never once in the, in the Bible does it ever, is it ever used to refer in the New Testament to the physical organ. It has the idiom of referring to that which is at the center of something, the core value of something, and it comes to speak of that which is at the core of man, specifically his thinking. And so the cardio relates to a category of human thinking, the cognitive function in the soul and the mentality of the soul. And there's another word that's used in the Greek, nous. And so I describe this or illustrate this with these two concentric circles, the inner circle representing that innermost core area of our deepest thoughts and thinking. This is the cardia. And then surrounding that is the nous, the mentality of the soul. Sometimes noose, because it's a broader concept, can include both ideas. I think that's important to, to note here. But cardia specifically refers to that innermost part of the mentality of the soul. So we're to love the Lord our God. Notice it's thinking. It's thinking. It's not emoting. The first thing Jesus says is love the Lord your God with, the, with your whole thinking, thought. It has to do with content. It's not just sitting back and having a sentimental, feel-good, warm, fuzzy experience because we've sung so many wonderful hymns that lift our spirits and now aren't we encouraged, so let's go home and say it was good to have been there and we worship God this morning because we're so uplifted. It's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you're going to love God, you've got to think. You've got to start putting some things together, use a little logic and study the Word of God. It's in your thinking, with you, all of your thinking. And, secondly, with your entire soul. Suke, with your entire soul and with all of your understanding. Dia noia, which refers to, again, to thought. So the thrust of all this is to thinking, to understanding God, to taking time to study God's Word, to learn about God, and the way we learn about God is by learning His self-revelation, which is the Scriptures. Now, this is a quote from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. In Deuteronomy 6, 5 we read, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. And there we have the Hebrew word lave for heart. And with all thy soul. And there we have the word nefesh for soul. And with all your might. And there you have the word strength. And that word from the Hebrew word a'ad means, or from the Hebrew word ma'ad, which is intensity, it has to do with your volition. So what do we learn from that? That if we're going to love God, it involves thinking, it involves volition, and it involves the entirety of our person. In other words, this is supposed to be the most important thing in your life. It's more important than your job. It's more important than your marriage. It's more important than your family. It's more important than your hobbies. It's more important than sports. Now, I know, guys, that gets a little tough, but it's more important than sports. It's more important than relaxation. Not that any of those things are wrong in themselves, but the priority is God. That means that 
you arrange your schedule so that you're always in Bible class when it's time to be in Bible class. You work out, and if you can't, then you get the tapes. But the priority is to be there and to take in the Word because ultimately the only thing that you're going to take with you when you die is what's in your soul. And you have to develop the love for the Lord your God, and that comes from learning His Word. And then, after Jesus emphasizes that, of course, He connects it with loving your neighbor as yourself. So, we need to ask the next question, point number five. How do we love the Lord? How do we love the Lord? Now, let's remember the context. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. So let's see how loving the Lord is used in the book of Deuteronomy. We'll just sort of uh, daisy-chain some scriptures together. You might want to look them up and underline them as we go through. But I think it's illuminating to see how God says we can know whether or not we love Him. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 11 Verse 1. Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch, fifth book of the Old Testament. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep His charge, His statutes, His ordinances, and His commandments. What's that talking about? That means that that relates obedience to loving God. How do you know if you love God according to Deuteronomy 11.1? 1? Obedience to the mandates of Scripture. Now look down at verse 13. And it shall come about if you listen obediently. Now, what does that concept, listening obediently, remind you of? What's James talking about? Hearing and doing. If you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. What is that? Listening obediently to God's commandments is related to loving God. Then turn, look down a little further to verse 22. For if you are careful to keep all this commandment which I am commanding you, what's that talking about? Application, obedience. If you are careful to keep all this commandment which I am commanding you to do it, to love the Lord your God. See, if you ever notice this in the Old Testament, it's, it's the analogy we've seen in, in Galatians chapter 3 is takes all of human history and stretch, stretch, stretches it out like a timeline. And in the early years, it's like spiritual infancy. As long as you're okay. The roof didn't fall in. That's okay. Uh, The early years are like infancy. The later years are like maturity. And how do you treat your kids? Your kids are are operating. they're, They're young. They don't have abstract reasoning yet. And so you have to give them very concrete examples when you teach them. And then when they get older, you can start using abstract examples. Well, God does the same thing historically. Everything in Israel was a picture. You think of everything related to the tabernacle. Everything was a picture. When God's going to teach about redemption, what does He do? He makes the nation... First of all, He takes them to Egypt where they become slaves. Then He redeems them, physically brings them out, and takes them through the Red Sea. It's very physical. It's very visual. And so God is going to make sure they get the point that the way you know if you love God is you do something, you keep my commandments. So there are these very visible, visual uh, ways of determining whether or not you're fulfilling the mandates of God. Furthermore, if we notice in this passage back in verse 14, God says, if you're obeying me, then the weather's going to be fine, you're going to have successful crops, and if you're not obeying me, you're going to have a famine. Well, that's real easy to tell. You know, just go look at your gross national product at the end of the year. If it's going up, then everybody's positive volition applying the word. If, you're, if it's going down, then they're not. Very concrete. Look at, um, let's turn over a couple of chapters, Deuteronomy 13.3. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet. This is dealing with the false prophet. That prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul means, number one, that you've developed enough understanding of the truth to have discernment and not to listen to false teaching and heresy. So you've got discernment. Deuteronomy 19.9. Turn over a couple of more chapters. Deuteronomy 19.9. 
If you carefully observe all this commandment, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and what? To walk in His ways always. What's the connection? Loving the Lord your God is seen in the life by obedience to the mandates of God. And then the last couple of verses we'll look at in Deuteronomy or in the 30th chapter. Closing chapters of Deuteronomy. Moses says, Moreover, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you might live. And the whole context up to that point is obedience. And then in verse 16, Deuteronomy 36, we just read, and now verse 16 in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. Now, what's the bottom line? You can't miss it. How many times in Deuteronomy, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times, the phrase love the Lord is used and every time it's connected to obeying His mandates. Now, some people would say, well, that's just legalism. That's just legalism. No, that's not legalism. That's not legalism, and we'll see why in a few minutes. A couple of other passages in the Old Testament. Joshua 23, 11. Joshua says, So take diligent heed to yourselves. That means pay attention to love the Lord your God. And then there's a good verse in, Proverbs, in excuse me, in Psalms 31, 23 says, It's a command. Oh, love the Lord your God, all you His godly ones. And then it says, the Lord preserves the faithful. That is, defined in context, is those who've advanced to spiritual maturity who love the Lord through obedience. And He fully recompenses, this is a contrast, He fully recompenses the proud doer. Now, what does that mean, to fully recompense the proud doer? This is a warning of divine discipline to the arrogant believer. Remember, arrogance is the opposite of humility. If you're arrogant, you cannot love God. In arrogance, you are self-absorbed. You are not occupied with God. You're not concerned about His will, but your will. And so you are opposed to God, and God is opposed to you. 1 Peter 5.5 5 and James 4, we find the same statement. For God is opposed, or God makes war against the arrogant, but He gives grace to the humble. Now, there are six things that arrogant people want. Arrogant people want wealth without honor. Arrogant people want success without integrity. They just want to go out there, make it to the top without any integrity, and they'll compromise anything to get there and walk over anyone to get there. So arrogant people want wealth without honor, success without integrity. Third, they want promotion without ability. It doesn't matter how good I am at my job, how bad I am at my job. I think that I've been here X amount of days, so I need to get a promotion and a raise. Promotion without ability. Fourth, they want recognition without humility. They just want to have their approbation less stroked, so they want recognition without humility. Fifth, arrogant people want love without virtue. They want love without virtue. And last, they want sex without morality. Arrogant people want wealth without honor, success without integrity, promotion without ability, recognition without humility, love without virtue, and sex without morality. This is why grace orientation comes first. You have to learn humility, authority orientation to God, and teachability before you're ever going to get to a point where you can begin to appreciate God for who He is and what He has done for you and begin to love Him. Without humility, we cannot learn, advance, or have any kind of close intimacy with God. Now, Jesus reiterates these same principles when it comes to loving Him in the New Testament. Turn over now to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're just walking our way through the Scriptures this evening to see how these themes are consistent throughout the Scripture. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, what? 
If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What does that remind us of? reminds us of all those passages in Deuteronomy where God says, if you love me, love the Lord, walk in my ways, follow my mandates, keep my statutes, my ordinances, do everything I tell you to do. How do you know what is the clear visual aid for for giving you the barometer of your spiritual life and your obedience, your love for God? Love for God can be so abstract. It's obedience. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus said. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. And that indicates the Holy Spirit. And that's how we do this. It's only under the, the power of God, the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Look down in John 14 to verse 21. Jesus says, if He who has my commandments and keeps them, that's doctrine, the completed canon of Scripture, all these imperatives we've been studying in, in James. Those are mandates. Those aren't options. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. What's the opposite? If you don't keep keep his commandments, you don't love him. You haven't advanced far enough in the spiritual life. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And that tells us that the more we advance in the spiritual life and understand things and apply what what we've learned, the more God will help us understand more and more. It's, it's a cumulative process. As we grow, we will have gain greater insight. God the Holy Spirit will reveal more and more to us of the truth of God's Word, and we will advance. But if we're hostile to the Lord, if we're disobedient, then God's not going to reveal to us anymore. If He's given us a certain amount and we've rejected that, He's not going to give us more. So you have to be growing and advancing and God and Jesus will disclose more and more of himself to us as we advance in loving him. Now, verse 23, Jesus answered Judas and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me. So here we have the connection between obedience and love. Now there's a lot of other things in these passages, and we will wait till we get there in our study of John before we exegete all those details. But the conclusion from Deuteronomy and John is that we know we love God by our level of obedience. It's not indicated by how we feel. It's not the rosy glow. It's not our emotional response. after church that have anything to do with it. It's measured through the objective criteria of obedience to God under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Now all of that was point five, that our love for God is measured by obedience to His Word. Point six, Jesus is saying in Matthew 22, in His summation of the law, that our highest priority, the highest priority for the believer is personal love for God, which derives first from learning doctrine and is at its very core an activity of the mind that works itself out in terms of obedience to to divine mandates. It is our highest priority. It begins by learning doctrine and is first and foremost an activity of the mind. It is thinking that works itself out in terms of obedience. See, the Pharisees were, Jesus accused them of being whitewashed sepulchers, whitewashed tombstones. They look good on the outside, but on the inside it's rotten. And in contrast, true spirituality begins on the inside by changing, by uh, transforming our thinking, and that then changes what goes on on the outside. So it's hearing and doing. It's the same theme, application. Now, this takes us back to the process of application, which is the grace learning spiral. The pastor-teacher communicates doctrine. Now, it's very important to have a pastor-teacher who um, knows the original languages. Now, over the years, I have fought what sometimes has been a losing battle. And that is that I want to maintain a high standard for the pastoral ministry. That means that my policy is that I will not ordain anyone 
who does not have functional ability in Greek at least, hopefully Hebrew. They need to know the original languages. I have watched one doctrinal pastor after another go out, being ordained, not know the original languages, and they are just completely crippled by their dependence upon somebody else. And the problem is they never really learn to think for themselves. They don't develop those analytical skills. And in the early years of this country... Many of the denominations had those high standards. I remember speaking to a man several years ago, went to be with the Lord about 15 years ago, and he was ordained as a Southern Presbyterian in 1931. In his ordination exams, he had to, at the exam, give written proficiency. He was given a Greek text and a Hebrew text, and he had to translate them and exegete them with no tools available. That's what prepares men for the ministry. Somebody who can accurately handle the Word of God. Not just someone who knows doctrine, but someone who can work their way around the text. And I am a firm believer that one of the reasons we've gotten in the mess we're in is because fundamentalists have historically had this anti-intellectual attitude that has captivated our churches. And the reason for that can be understood because when the fundamentalists in the 19th century sent all their boys off to seminary, the seminaries had gone liberal, and when their boys came home, they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in the infallibility of God's Word, they didn't believe in the virgin birth or in miracles or the substitutionary atonement. So they said, why give them all this education if it's going to destroy them? Well, they have to find a place or some place, some way, to give them the proper education. So the pastor-teacher needs to not only be trained in the original languages, but in systematic theology, in historical theology, so that they can work within the context, the cultural context they find themselves in, and have an understanding of what the, what the ebbs and flows are in their culture so that they can prepare their sheep to, to live in the uh, pasture in which they're, they're living and to avoid the, uh, the bad weeds, so to speak, and, and the uh, poisonous weeds or whatever. They need to know the truth. They need to have a, a wide variety of education because a pastor needs to be studying and teaching all the time. It is a life of concentration. And you need to have the cognitive skills and the academic skills to make it work. But it goes beyond that. You know, there's a lot of guys out there with the academic skills but they don't have a spiritual life. They don't have a relationship with, with God, and they've confused gnosis with epinosis. And I tell you, I was amazed back in the, back in the 80s, the vast number of men I knew that had gone through seminary, many of whom had gone to Dallas Seminary, some of whom were professors at Dallas Seminary, who got all caught up in the charismatic movement. Because what happened is, if you build your life for years on gnosis, Sooner or later, when that outside pressure of adversity comes, and you don't have a, an internal walk with the Lord, then what's going to happen is there's no soul fortress, and you're going to crater, and one day you wake up, and you're cold and dead on the inside. And that's what happened. Usually it happened to their wives first. Nine times out of ten, it happened to their wives first. And then their wives got involved with the charismatic movement, reached over and put the ring in the husband's nose, and pulled him after them. And in, in almost every case, that was the uh, that was the model. Well, the pastor teaches doctrine. The Holy Spirit who indwells us is our teacher and takes that spiritual truth as pneumaticos doctrine, makes it understandable to us, but he doesn't understand it for us. We have to think about it, meditate on it. That's positive volition. And when we understand it, it becomes gnosis. And then we exercise positive volition again, and we believe it, and it becomes enters in, the Holy Spirit transfers it into the innermost thinking of our soul, the cardia or the heart. Now, that just makes it usable. That doesn't mean we're automatically going to use it and apply it. That means volition again. We get in a situation and we have to make a choice. Am I going to apply what's in my soul or not? So the issue in the spiritual life has to do with God's provision of what this is, what I call the grace learning spiral. Learning doctrine is not dependent on your academic background. It's not dependent upon your IQ. It's dependent upon God the Holy Spirit. 
The filling of the Holy Spirit overcomes all deficits that we have in terms of our background. I've seen people with the uh, most limited education, background, and intelligence through pure perseverance and consistency in going to Bible class learn incredible amounts of doctrine, true wisdom, and there are many people in this country who have, have accumulated many academic degrees some Christians, some not Christians, and they don't understand a thing about truth. And the Bible says, professing to be wise, they became fools. So God, through God the Holy Spirit, has provided the grace basis to overcome whatever deficits we might have so that every believer has equal opportunity and equal privilege to learn the entire counsel of God and to grow to spiritual maturity. That's the grace learning spiral, and it culminates in application. It's point six. Point seven, relationship with God affects our relationship with man. That's why Jesus says, first, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your understanding. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. Relationship with God comes first. We do not adjust our relationship with people first, or just because we have a good relationship with people, it doesn't mean we have a good relationship with God. Social interaction, even with other mature Christians, is not the issue. Social interaction is not necessarily fellowship. The issue is our relationship with God, and once we get that straight, then other relationships will begin to fall in line. Point number eight. Thus, Jesus, following the Old Testament, connects love for God as the priority with its outworking towards all mankind. You have to understand personal love for God before you're going to be able to understand impersonal love or unconditional love for all mankind. Now, all of that helps us understand the concept of personal love for God. We are rewarded for that, and there is special promise of inheritance to those who love God at the end of our passage in James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? Poor of this world is those who have true, genuine humility. To be rich in faith, genuine humility leads to loving God and inheritance in the kingdom. Now, that is the that precedes verse 6, which is the application of the royal law. Now, the royal law is the second commandment Jesus mentioned in Matthew 22, 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, we better take some time analyzing that because it's one of the most often quoted Old Testament passages. It's originally cited in Leviticus 19:18, but then it's quoted in Matthew 19:19, Matthew 22:39, Mark 12:31. Luke 10.27, Romans 13.9, Galatians 5.14, and in our passage, James 2.8. Now, anything that God has taken the time to repeat that often, we need to take some time to study and analyze because this verse in particular has been horrendously mistranslated and misapplied as a result of the uh, psycho-heresy of the last 10 or 20 years. The psycho-heretics look at this and say, well, what this means is you've got to have good self-image. You've got to first love yourself before you can love others. So we have to go out and learn how to accept ourselves and have to love ourselves. And once we learn how to love ourselves, then we can love others. So that leads to arrogance. And it's just the opposite of what this passage means. But we're running out of time, so we'll stop there and we'll come back to look at what the royal law is and its application for us next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for uh, the clarity of your word and its perspicacity. And Father, we thank you that we can understand it under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and how clear it is that you have linked together personal love for you with obedience to your commandments that we need to look at our lives and use the perfect mirror of the completed canon of Scripture to evaluate our own lives, to see that we are hearers of the Word and doers as well, that we are applying what we learn 
because that is the mark of our advance to spiritual adulthood and learning to personally love you because of all that you have done for us in providing salvation and giving us your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember these things, to challenge us with them as we go about our daily life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.